So open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 17 to 20. And um, this passage, let me, let me introduce it a little bit. This passage is the first half of an argument. And Paul is really starting to uh, ratchet up his argument against, remember, his people. Paul was a Jew himself, and so he's addressing the Jewish people as well. And he's really starting to bring in um, his argument and ratchet it up a little bit. And so uh, this is the first half of an argument, and it really is going to sound like an incomplete sentence that we're reading. And the reason why is because it is an incomplete sentence that we're reading. Uh, but uh, the first half of the sentence is one argument, and then the second half of the sentence is another argument. So Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 20, and it says this. It says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know, uh, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And then next week, uh, we will see the second half of that argument. But first, let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity to worship you and to sing praises to you. God, we thank you that you hear our prayers. And even though we have rebelled against you and sinned and turned our backs uh, on you, that, um, that you still saved us, and you put your love into action through your Son, Jesus Christ who laid his life down to save us from the sins that we committed. Father, we, uh, we pray that, that you would accept our worship this morning, that it would bring you honor and glory. And as we look at your word, that you would transform us, you would change us to be more like Christ than when we came in. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. And we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to see uh, really two major points in these verses this morning. And the first one is that misused truth isn't truth, okay? Um, and we're going to see that in verses 17 and 18. So look at 17 and 18, and these verses describe how the Jew uh, thinks about himself in relation to God and to the things of God. And, and before we go too much farther, I know that um, in Romans chapter 2, what Paul is doing is he's laying out an argument on how the Jewish people need the gospel, how Christ died for the Jews as well, and that the law is not sufficient to save them. The Jewish people need the gospel. They need Christ. They need to put their faith in Christ in order to be saved. Okay? And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see uh, kind of this, this argument get ratcheted up a little bit, and I just want to say that this chapter is not anti-Semitic. It is not saying that the Jews are, are um, unworthy of the gospel. It is not saying that the Jews deserve to be punished or any of that business that people claim. Paul himself was a Jew. Paul himself was proud of his heritage and his background as a Jew. And so he is not condemning all Jews as though it's some sort of anti-Semitic rant. And anyone who would tell you that it is, is lying. Okay? What it is, is Paul is laying out an argument that the Jews need Christ. Okay, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the law that they had, the law that they were relying on is not sufficient for salvation. And so Paul is, is laying out that they need Christ. Okay, I just wanted to pause and say that lest someone think uh, something that is unbiblical. Uh, so 
really in verses 17 and 18, these verses are describing how the Jew thinks about himself in relation to God and also to the things of God. And so uh, remember, Paul's a great apologist. He knows how to defend the faith. And so um, what he does is he kind of answers objections to his argument and he deals with them. He defeats them and then moves on. And so what he's kind of doing uh, is he's addressing this objection where uh, someone might say, well, I, I'm specially chosen by God. Uh, I uniquely delight in him. I know his will and I'm uh, possessed of good spiritual discernment. I, I am one of God's chosen people. Of course, I have this figured out. God has given this to me. I have the law. I know spiritual goodness and, and spiritual evil. I know right from wrong and, and uh, worship from sinfulness. I don't need to hear this argument, Paul. I, I have this figured out. And he says this in contrast to really the, the prevailing faithlessness of the Gentiles. Remember where this, where this letter is going. It's going to a church in Rome, a completely pagan and uh, faithless city. And so uh, you have these, these, uh, these Jewish kind of Christians that are in this church and they, they see that the Gentiles, the Romans, living as Romans do, worshiping these pagan god and these idols and they're in the midst of it and they're saying, look, I, I, I'm one of God's chosen people. I, I delight in him. I love the law. I, I know his will I, and, and, and I, I'm spiritually discerning. I'm good. I have nothing to worry about. But as Paul reveals to us, that self-perception of really most of, of his people, the Jewish people in his time, he's also, telling, uh, he's also telling us something else. He's telling us that the truth misused isn't the truth. In fact, the misused truth blinds us from the, gen the real truth. His own people had the truth given to them from Moses and, and all the prophets. And we can read the Old Testament, we can see the law, we can see what was given to the Jewish people. It is God's truth, and it, it absolutely was given to them. They have, uh, they've had an enormous privileges given to them, but he says that they've misused those privileges and, and those blessings that God has given to them. They've misused them, and therefore they're blinding themselves to the truth and its purpose. What was happening is the Jewish people were saying, we have the law. I have the law. I have nothing to fear. And Paul says, yes, you have the law, but you're not obeying the law. You have the law, but you don't understand the law. You have the law, but you don't know why the law was given. The law was given to condemn you, to show you that you need a Savior. And yet here you are resting and finding comfort in the very thing that condemns you. You need a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior. That's, what, that's Paul's argument. All right, so let's break down 17 and 18. There are, I don't know, four or five things in these two verses, and then we'll move on. Uh, but the first thing we see in verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew, this is the first time that Paul directly uh, addresses the Jews. You call yourself a Jew. Remember, this church was split. There were some uh, Gentiles, some, uh, some people who were pagans before, and they came to Christ. You know, they're Romans. And then there was also the Jewish population there that came to the church. So he's talking to the Jews here. And remember, he's ratcheting up his arguments. You call yourself a Jew. 
Ever since uh, about the time of 2 Kings, the name Jew had been used to refer to all of God's people, all of the Israelites, okay? There are all sorts of, of arguments on why that, where that term came from and why it came to apply to all of God's people in that way. Uh, a lot of people suspect that it came from the tribe of Judah, which was the last uh, identifiable tribe in the, the time of the dispersion of Israel, but no one knows 100% where that term came from. You'll get different answers from different people. But what we find here in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, Paul uses the term, you call yourself a Jew, okay? Paul's saying you take pride, you take confidence in the fact that you have this unique relationship with God, that God has chosen you. You are one of God's chosen people. He has elected you. Right? Paul's raising up here this problem. Uh, it's, a, it's a misapplication of the doctrine of God's national election of Israel. Okay? The people of Israel will say, Paul, well, your gospel is good. Yeah, I, I appreciate your concern. I'm, I'm glad that you're writing, um, writing to us. God has, but God has chosen us out of all the nations in the earth. He specifically picked us. We don't need your gospel. Again, thank you very much. Thank you for concern. But God has chosen us, and we are his people. We don't need your gospel. We don't need your Jesus. We don't need your salvation because God has already taken care of that for us. Paul's saying, look, you're, you're misunderstanding what happened. You're misunderstanding this doctrine of, of, of divine election. You, you don't understand it. Just because you're one of God's chosen people doesn't mean you don't need the gospel. It doesn't mean that you cannot be condemned. And Paul, in, uh, in Romans, places really two arguments against that misapplication of the doctrine of election. First of all, he says, look, if you're truly elected, you're going to be transformed. That, that's, the, that's, uh, that's how you're going to know if you're elected. If you say that you're the elect of God, if you say you're chosen by God and God has uh, not transformed your life, if you have not become a doer of the law as well as a hearer of the law— then, then maybe you're not chosen. In other words, he, he points to uh, really the results and effects of election. And he says, if these things aren't true of you, you can say what you want, but if you don't demonstrate obedience, if you don't demonstrate a love for your God, if your heart has not been transformed, then something's wrong. Something's wrong. We can apply this to us today. Look, you and I can call ourselves Christians. We can say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I, I know right from wrong, and I know morality, I know immorality, I, I know righteousness, I know sinfulness. But if all we're doing is giving lip service to the Scriptures, we're not living it. If, we, if we're not excited about worshiping our Lord, if, if we show no concern for being obedient to, to Christ, then maybe we're confused. I, I can stand here and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. But if I treat my wife terribly, if I indulge in all sorts of horrible, awful things, then there's no evidence of the faith that I claim that I have. There's no fruit. And so maybe I'm confused. And that's a terrible thing to be confused about. So we have national election. Paul addresses that. You know, maybe you're, maybe you're misunderstanding what it means to be God's chosen people. But secondly, he, he, and he does this especially in Romans, later chapters, Romans 9 through 11, 
The Apostle Paul says, you know, alongside the truth of your national election as a people, you need to recognize that there's another truth, another doctrine that is just as important. That is the doctrine of the individual election of God. And so he quotes for the Jewish people, really Romans 9 through 11 covers this really well. But there's a famous quote in Romans 9, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. A lot of people argue over this quote. Um, But he points to two true sons of Abraham. One is chosen and one is not. Uh, One is the father of God's people, one is not. One is blessed and the other is cursed. And he does that so that that Israel will not presume on this special favor and election which God really has bestowed on them as a nation. But Paul's words to his people in his own time really are just as applicable to us today as they were when he originally wrote them. We've received great favor. You and I are are incredibly privileged. You and I, in fact, I think every single person in this nation has more access to God's word than anyone else in history. There is not a single reason why anyone in this room should not have access to God's word. You shouldn't be reading God's scriptures. I I don't know how many Bibles I have between the bookshelf in my my office and the bookshelf at home. I, I probably have 20 or 30 Bibles just sitting on my shelf. I have a Bible in probably every single translation in the world today on my cell phone. I can pull it out and I can read it. We have access to, uh, to preachers and teachers uh, all throughout history. We have the books of people, you know, like Martin Luther and, and John Wesley and, and all of these incredible men and women of faith who have written and left their books behind us. And so we have access to God's word. We have access to men of incredible faith who have left their works behind for us. And so you and I are incredibly privileged as far as faith is concerned. We absolutely are. But it is possible for us to rest in those privileges without experiencing the realities that those privileges point. So you and I can sit here and we can say, yeah, I have the Bible. The Bible's so good. And and you know what? We need to do these things that the Bible says. We need to obey what the Bible says. And if our nation just did what the scriptures commanded, we'd be so much better off. But if we don't do and we don't actually believe what the scriptures point to, and we don't actually believe what all the theologians that came before us told us about, and we, we don't actually show any interest in being obedient to Christ, and we don't know what it means to actually love God, then maybe we're just giving lip service to him. Maybe we're just saying, I'm a Christian just because we feel like we should. Maybe we, maybe, maybe we think we have a faith that we don't actually have. Because if our life is not transformed, if we're more self-consumed and self-centered, then we are Christ-centered. If, if our decisions that we make are based on what's best for me and, and what I most would enjoy, and we don't even take into consideration what God says is right and what God says is good and what God's word says we should do, if we don't even consider those things as we live our life, then there's not a lot of evidence of a genuine saving faith. And I'm not here to judge you. I don't know your heart. And I, I'm not saying that you're, you're not saved. If you think that you are, that's not what I'm doing. But what I am saying is that you need to evaluate your own heart. You, you, need, to really, you need to really spend some time in God's word. Spend some time in prayer. Do you, do you really believe that Christ is Lord? Do you really believe that you are in desperate need of God's mercy? Because if you don't think you need God's mercy, then something's wrong. 
And you're in the same position of the Jews that Paul was writing to in Romans chapter 2. It is possible for us to become proud. It's possible for us to say, yeah, you know, I have the Bible and, and I know right from wrong. And, and you know what, those, those people, they're sinners. And I, I look down, you know what, I, I, I don't want to minister to them. I don't even want to talk to them because they disgust me. Paul's saying that's a contradiction. He says, why are you proud? Why on earth would you be proud? You have nothing to be, you have, you have no reason to be proud. Moses in, chap, in Deuteronomy chapter 7 he says this, I'm going to start in verse 6. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people than, uh, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, the reason, the origin, the source of God's choosing of his people had nothing to do with the people, had nothing to do with them or, or anything that they had done, any, any, anything that they were. It had everything to do with who God is. And he demonstrated mercy to them. And the same is true today. How can you be proud? How can you demonstrate this sinful pride of being saved by the grace of God? How can, how can we be proud of having been chosen on the basis of the mercy of God and the merits of Jesus Christ and not of your own? What is there to be proud? And I don't mean proud as in like I, this is a good thing. I mean pr like a sinful pride. What is there to be proud of if you didn't do anything? If, if God had to demonstrate mercy to save you, that should humble us. It should humble us when we realize that God saved us in his grace and in his mercy we receive salvation. That should humble us. Who am I that the Lord of the universe would be concerned for me? Who am I that God the Son would lay his life down for the sins that I committed? I did. I'm guilty of. It should humble us that for some reason God in his mercy has taken us and saved us. Despite yourself, despite myself, he's brought you into his kingdom. That is the most humbling experience in the world. How on earth could we show pride over that? Paul's saying, uh, to the people of his own day, his own people, the Jewish people, they had twisted that doctrine. They turned it on its head. They had, been, they had become prideful when they should have been demonstrating humility. They're saying, God has chosen us. We're special. We're great. And what they did was they separated themselves from the Gentiles and began looking down at the Gentiles. Well, of course they act that way. Of course they're disgusting. They're, 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 not, they're not chosen by God. They're, they're not Jews. They're not Israelites. Of course they're going to do that. And no, I don't want anything to do with them. That's a, that's a demonstration of pride. But the problem is they didn't do anything. They just received mercy. Secondly, notice what he says again in verse 17. He says, um, and rely on the law. Well, again, he's responding. We talked a lot about this uh, last week. 
It's something that he hears from the Jewish people all the time. Paul, you don't understand. We don't need your gospel. We have the law. Paul, we are, we're, we're Jews. We're the Jewish people. We have the law. We don't need your gospel. We don't need your Jesus. We don't need to be saved that way because we have the law. And the apostle says, fine, you have the law, but do you do it? Do you understand it? Do, do you know why it was given to you? You have the law. Why on earth would you take comfort in something that you don't obey? It doesn't make sense. Paul's people, the Jews that he's writing to, are saying to him, look, we have the law of all the people in the world. We have been given the law of God. And that's true. They were given the law. But Paul is, is pointing out here the problem of misunderstanding the function of the law and also its demands. They, they didn't understand it. They, they hadn't realized that the law condemned them. If they're not following it, and nobody... Nobody followed it. And so Paul's remedy is to emphasize to them really the demands of the law and the extent of the law. The law is far more comprehensive than, than they really had ever thought. It extended even to uh, the motions and attitudes of the heart. Jesus explains this so well in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. If, you're, if you've never read the Sermon on the Mount, I recommend you read those chapters because that's what Jesus is doing. He's explaining the law and how it, it, it extends uh, much farther than people understood. The demands of the law were strict. In fact, apart from God's grace, the law would condemn everyone. And he points to two realities that they were ignoring, the second and third uses of the law. Now, the law has three purposes, okay? Uh, to reveal who God is, to restrain evil, and to reveal what is pleasing to God, in a nutshell. There's a lot more to it than those things, right? Uh, there's a lot more descriptions just in those things. But the third use of the law is a pattern for righteousness, okay? Uh, but it's also true uh, that the law drives us to Christ. When, when, we see, uh, when, when we see who God is through the law, and we see what is evil and what is good, and how to be righteous, what it does is it drives us to Christ. We look at what evil is, and we say, I'm guilty. I need a Savior. And that sends us straight to Christ, okay? Um, so, uh, though we want to say, uh, along with the Psalms, how I love your law, o Lord, even as we say that, we realize that apart from Christ, the law would condemn us. I am guilty, and so are you. And so, therefore, the law always leads us right back to the mercy of God and the Savior. As we read the law, we say, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. I need a Savior. I need mercy. If you forget either of those realities about the law, you become what had happened to the people of God in Paul's day. You become immune to your own sense of need for mercy, for grace. If, when you read the law, if, if you don't recognize that you're guilty, if you don't recognize that it, it shows who God is, that he is holy, then what happens is you become prideful and you begin to reject the idea that you need to repent. And you begin to reject this idea that, that you're sinful. And then you begin to forget that you need a Savior. And that's a dangerous place to be. He goes on to say a third thing in, uh, in verse uh, 17. And boast in your God. Now, think back. Uh, one of the most incredible stories in the entire Bible. Uh, it is just incredible. If you have never read 1 Kings chapter 18, I recommend you read it. 
uh, and what First King, you don't have to turn there right now, but uh, when, uh, what this covers is when Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal, okay? Um, and he does it, he's mocking them, and, and he ultimately then uh, kills these prophets of Baal. I think it was 400 of them uh, he kills. And uh, you can just see it, as this event is happening, you can see a pious Jew standing there watching saying, God, I'm so glad I worship the real God, the, the true God, the one true God, the one who is, who is real. I'm so glad uh, that I don't worship these idols that, that are inventions of men, that were just invented by people. I'm so glad I worship the true God. I can just imagine Elijah saying that after that event is over. Elijah just saying, God, I, I'm so glad that I get to worship you. I'm so glad that, that you are true, that you are our God. I'm so glad that I, I'm not worshiping some pagan. And I can see the same thing happening. You know, a, a genuine pious Jew in, in Rome and uh, there in the, in the first century is looking at, at, at all the sinfulness and immorality and all the things that happened in Rome in that day saying, I'm so glad I'm not one of them. I'm so glad I don't have to worship these idols, these false gods. I'm so glad I don't have to go into these temples in this way because I know that, I know that it's just figment of man's imagination. You can understand there's a distinction there isn't there? Between the glory of the one true God and the idols of man's imagination. Yet the Apostle Paul reminds us here that there's a problem. There's a problem of separating the knowledge of the one true God from God himself. We can know, it is possible to know about God and not know him. It's possible to, to know a lot of facts about our Lord but not worship him. One can glory in really ideas and be marveled by, uh, you know, these, uh, these thoughts without really knowing God. We can know a great deal about Him without knowing Him. One can think a lot about the one true God without fellowshipping and, and having a saving personal relationship with the one true God. And so the Apostle Paul says to the Jewish people of his day, yeah, you boast in your God, but you don't know much about Him. And you've thought a lot about him, but you don't know him. And so uh, Paul reminds us that the knowledge of God and God himself should never be separated. should never be separated. We, it should never be true that we know all about God, that, that we read the scriptures as though it's a, an ancient history book and we're, we're just reviewing it in that context. And, and so we should never look at it and... Actually, let me back up. Have you ever been in a, like a Bible study or a community group or whatever, and you get all of this background information, all this context, and uh, what happens is they say, well, you know, if you knew the culture and this and this and this, and, and this is why they did this, and this ceremony means this, and all of this stuff, but there's never really a, a call to repent. There's never really anyone pointing you to Christ. That's kind of what it's talking about. Look, it's fine to know a lot of facts and to study, but we should never separate the knowing about God from knowing Him. There's a big difference. We can't say, as so many people do, well, you know, I, I, I want to have a relationship with God, but I don't need to read my Bible. I, I don't need to spend time in God's Word. Who cares about doctrine? Who cares about theology? That doesn't make sense. Because you know who cares about the Bible? You know who cares about doctrine and, and theological principles found in the Scriptures? God's people do. That's who. Because that Bible, the theology and the doctrines found in the Scripture is God's revelation of himself to his people. And they won't know him apart from that revelation of himself to them. 
It's impossible to know God without the scriptures. But on the other hand, if we simply become obsessed with the facts revealed about God, we don't realize that the word that God has given us in his word about himself is so that, so that we would be in fellowship with him and experience him as he is and as he is towards us in his, his benefits. We've misused the theology and doctrines and, and the, the revelation in the scriptures that he gave to us. Anytime we separate the knowledge of God from God himself, we will go astray every single time. And so the Apostle Paul is accusing his own people in his own day of knowing a lot about God, but not knowing God. They've fallen in love with their ideas about God, but not with God himself. And that's a, that's a trap that we can fall into today as well. We can have these wonderful ideas about God and reject what the scriptures say about him. It's common. It's good. It really is. Turn on any of the, the, prosperity, uh, the prosperity preachers on, on any Sunday morning. You, you'll see it. They're, they're in love with these ideas of what God could be. They make God in their own image. It's not God. It's not that God is revealed in the scriptures. Then, finally, in verse 18, um, he says, You know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. They said, look, Paul, we we don't need your gospel. We know the will of God. He's revealed it to us in the law. We're we're spiritually discerning. You say you have the law, so you don't need the gospel, but you don't do the law. Maybe you know it, but you don't do it. And so uh, don't claim you're immune from judgment because you know the law because you, you don't obey it. And so it's condemning you. You don't get to judge the Gentiles based on the law when you yourself refuse to obey it. So the Apostle Paul is reminding us today that it's not enough to admire the morality of God's law. It's not enough to criticize those who don't obey his law. We must embrace it with our own desires. Remember, we talked about a transformation. We must obey it with our own desires, not just give lip service to it. We must live by it. We must judge ourselves harshly and judge others charitably in light of the law. Paul's revealing all of these things in in his discussion with the Jews to show them how they've misused the truth and blinded themselves to, to what the truth actually is. Paul's not denying the election of the Jewish people. He's not denying that they have the law and that God gave them the law. He's simply saying that they've misunderstood and misapplied them. And what they've done is, is they've turned a truth into a falsehood. And it's blinding them from the real truth. The next point that we see comes in verses 19 and 20. Which really is going to show us that blind, uh, or the bad theology blinds us from the truth and it leads us into sin. They believe, the Jewish people... Um, they believe that they were here to instruct everybody else, uh, 19 to 20. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Right? So they believed uh, that they're here to instruct everyone else. And yet they don't see the holes in their own life. They don't see their own sin. And so the Apostle Paul is responding to this, this attitude. And he, he says two or three things. He says, first of all, pride destroys your mission. 
Okay, Uh, spiritual pride has destroyed your mission. It's not that God didn't call you to be a light to the Gentiles. It's that you have lorded over them as if somehow you're inherently better than they were instead of simply being saved by God's grace and mercy. So instead of serving them and ministering to them, right, and and trying to encourage them and, and lead them to faith, you've excluded them. You're withholding the gospel from them. You're withholding truth from them. Secondly, he says, you think you know God, but you don't. There's actually an unconscious ignorance of God's person and his law, right? Right in the monks of the people who think of themselves as being so wise and being teachers. And that ignorance of God's law and God's person has blinded you to your own blindness and need. You think you know God better than everyone else. You think uh, you know his law better than everyone else. And Paul's saying, you don't really know him at all. And you really don't know his law. You don't understand his law. And you certainly don't follow his law. And the fact is, you don't know him. You don't know his law has blinded you to your need of his grace. To the reality of the truth of his law. what, What it was meant to be. Why it was given to you. Thirdly, Paul goes on to say that the focus of his uh, Jewish um, friends or brothers um, on others' needs and others' deficiencies and, and other people's sins have prevented them from evaluating their own hearts. They're so focused on, you know, basically being legalistic and they're so focused on the sins of other people that they're not paying attention to sin in their own life. They're quick to see other people's faults, but they refuse to identify their own. And, and this, is, this is why I want you to see what, what Paul is saying is just as applicable to us today as it was to the Jewish people who he first wrote to. It's been easy for people who have been given you know, these incredible religious privileges. I told you we have access to God's word anywhere we are. And think about the culture around us. It's easy for us to be quick to criticize It absolutely is. I can open up God's word and I can walk outside and I can start pointing fingers really quick. I can say, wow, that that person's a sinner and wow, they're doing this and look how many casinos there are and oh man, what's this person doing in this place on a Sunday morning and and, and, oh man, isn't our society so sinful? And we could gather together even. All of us could uh, bring our chairs around. We could talk about our city or even our nation and say, man, the immorality in our city and our nation, the immorality around us is so bad and it's so terrible. And oh boy, uh, you know, our, our country is, is really going down the tube and God's going to judge us one day and it's so terrible. And, and we could sit here for hours and talk about how terrible the sinners are around us and how, how abundant they are. But if we gathered the chairs around and I said, you know what, instead of talking about how sinful society is around us, let's talk about our own sin. Let's confess our sins to one another. We'd all just sit here and stare at each other. We could hear crickets. It's true. We're quick to point out the sins in other people. And we most certainly do not want to share the sins in our own hearts. And that's a major problem for us. It was a major problem for the Jews in Paul's day, and it's a major problem for us today. The Apostle Paul is saying, this is why you need the gospel. Because when you really look at God, and when you really look at the law, if that's what you're trusting in, you fall short. 
if you're trusting in the law. By the way, the law is kind of a reference to the Old Testament. Certainly the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, but the law of the Old Testament in a nutshell, okay? Uh, If you're trusting the law, the Old Covenant, you fall short. Paul's reason for sharing these criticisms of his own people who he loves and cares about is not because he hates them. It's because he desires them to come to Christ. He wants to see them saved. He desires them to see their need for mercy, to see their need for the gospel. He wants them to see their need for grace, to cry out to God, to recognize that they are sinful as well and they are in desperate need of a Savior, just like you and me today. In a few minutes, we're we're going to come to the Lord's table, to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we are incapable of saving ourselves by goodness. And elders, if, if you want to move forward, the table reminds us that it's only the goodness, it's only the obedience, the worthiness, it's only the, the merits of Christ that can save us. And, and the Lord's Supper reminds us that, that we must come to Him in faith and trusting in Him alone and in faith alone to receive the grace that, that is the gospel. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the truth that Paul's preparing us to hear even in this passage. You are a sinner and you are in desperate need of a Savior. Everyone, Jew or Gentile, is condemned by the law. No one is righteous, no, not one, we'll see later. Every single person is a sinner, has fallen, has rebelled against God. And our only hope is receiving mercy, receiving grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our only hope for salvation because the law condemns us. The law shows us clearly, unequivocally, that we have fallen and we need a Savior. And we've been sent the perfect Savior in Jesus Christ, God the Son. We take the Lord's Supper to remember what Christ did for us, that he laid his life down. His body was torn apart. His blood was spilled. He endured, uh, endured spiritual torture. All the sins of the world were, were put onto him. He did that for us. He did it so that we could be saved, that God's people would be saved from sin. We celebrate what Christ did for us. As we tear the bread off and as you chew that bread, that represents Christ's body being torn apart for you. As we uh, drink the cup, that represents Christ's blood being spilled for you. The Lord's Supper is most certainly a celebration of the fact that Christ laid his life down for us. But it's a somber celebration because we're reminded that we're sinners and that Christ had to lay his life down for us because we are sinners. If, you're, if you have children here, feel free to uh, explain to them what's happening. The Lord's Supper is a time to evaluate your own heart and seek forgiveness from our Lord. Spend time in prayer. If you need to seek forgiveness from someone in this room, feel free to do that. Stand up and, and go talk to them. Pray with them. The way we take communion at this church is we come down the center aisle and you'll receive the, the cup and the bread and then you'll go around uh, the side. And you can take them either up here or when you return to your seat. You don't have to be a member of this church in order to partake in the Lord's Supper, but You do have to be a Christian. It doesn't make sense for you to celebrate the fact that Christ died for your sins if you don't believe that he did. And so if you're here and you've not put your faith in Christ, 
we're glad you're here. We hope you feel welcome. We hope that people treated you well. If you have questions about the Lord's Supper or salvation or the gospel, I'd love to talk to you after this service. But the Lord's Supper is not for you. I'm going to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.